From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Surgery Set. Before we get started, a quick plug for our new collaborative learning teleconference called SPOTS, Safer Prescribing of Opioids After Trauma and Surgery. Every month from now to September, we talk about opioid prescribing for a different group of prescribers, from pre-hospital personnel to the ED to surgical specialists and primary care. For more information, check out bit.ly slash uwspots. That's bit.ly slash uwspots. Now on with the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Catherine Gast. Dr. Gast is one of our plastic surgeons and the medical director of the UW Health Comprehensive Gender Services Program. After attending the University of Michigan, both for medical school and her residency in plastic surgery, she did a subspecialty fellowship in gender-affirming surgery at the University Hospital in Ghent, Belgium. Dr. Gast is one of a very few American surgeons who has advanced training in gender-affirming surgery and has built a remarkable multidisciplinary program in gender surgery here at UW. Enjoy. So Dr. Gast, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you very much for having me. You gave an amazing Grand Rounds here, which talked about some of the work that you're doing in gender surgery, and and I'd heard a bit about it and obviously learned a lot more about it from your talk, but let's just kind of start at the beginning with with how you ended up in this particular very specialized field. Okay, sure. So I am from Michigan, and I went to the University of Michigan for medical school. Two people in my medical school class of 170 were transgender. Both were male to female, so trans feminine um, people, and one actually transitioned our second year of medical school and was very open with all of her classmates about what gender dysphoria was and kind of what it what it meant to be transgender. And so it was kind of on my radar as kind of part of the human experience um, that some people are just born in the wrong bodies. And then um, I ended up staying at University of Michigan for my plastic surgery training, and news to me at the time, um, General Motors in Southeast Michigan has had a benefit for gender surgery since the, I think the 1980s. Wow. Um, Yeah, so long time. So a lot of transgender people would move to Southeast Michigan, get a job on the line at GM, have surgery, transition, um, and then kind of move away and kind of move past that phase in their lives. So we saw a lot of gender patients at the University of Michigan. Um, and there's one person there, my mentor in residency, Bill Kuzan, um, who's been doing you know a fair amount of gender surgery since the early 1990s. And I just really enjoyed taking care of those patients. Very underserved patient population, difficulties um, in accessing care, um, and a lot of like advocacy and policy work involved, and just really cool surgery. Like the, te- the technical aspects of the surgery itself are really challenging, and it's from a plastic surgery perspective, it's the ultimate reconstruction. So a person born in the wrong body, you know, trying to take male, normal male anatomy and turn it into like normal female looking anatomy is technically very challenging. Yeah. And so not only is it kind of the aesthetic aspect to it, but the functional aspect with kind of sexual health and urinary health and all that stuff. It's just, it's just really cool. So um, I, you know, I do kind of the broadly reconstructive plastic surgery. I don't do much cosmetic work, um, and gender is probably half of my practice. So after I finished plastic surgery training, I actually moved to Europe to do a fellowship because there were no fellowships at the time in the U.S. Yeah, and let's be clear about that. Like, not only are there no fellowships, there's like 
almost nobody formally trained. I mean, no. I guess the two go together, right? There's right. no formal training program, so there's no right. one formally trained. You're one of how many in the United States? There are about, I think, like 10 or 15 people doing bottom surgeries yeah. as genital, like, sex change operations, like vaginoplasties and phalloplasties. And most of those are, you know, reconstructive urologists and plastic surgeons that traveled and spent, you know, a couple weeks with somebody to kind of learn the technical aspects of it and wow. then went home and just started doing it. So... Um, so fellowship trained in the United States. That's me. Is you. Right now. The yeah, only right one now. in the whole country. And you make this point, like in your medical school class, you say there was like 170 people and yeah. there were two. And that's two. actually about, that's about right. right. That's representative of the United States. One percent. Yes, actually. So it's about, it's about one percent. We know this from the Williams Institute at UCLA. Um, and we think the one percent number, so they say 0.6 percent. But that, that was a large survey study of people that felt comfortable identifying themselves on a document that they are transgender, right? So I don't think that includes a lot of people that have not yet transitioned or, you know, fear discrimination or alienation from their social support systems, their families. So it's 1% plus, that's yeah. what I say. Yeah. So you, you talk about like 1.4 plus million people yeah. in the country. In the country, right. yeah. And that's just the U.S. And One fellowship trained surgeon. That's you. That's Thanks for making the time to come to our <laughs> studio today because clearly you're yeah. busy. Yeah. yeah. We're getting busy. Yeah. So, you know, most surgeons in the U.S. have a two-year-plus wait list. So where I did my fellowship in Belgium, you know, for a phalloplasty, transmasculine patients coming, wanting surgery, it was a five-year wait list with the surgeon I trained with. And for a vaginoplasty, it was two years plus. Oh, my so gosh. It's it's awful for these patients. I mean, you know, it's medically necessary surgery and more and more insurance is covering it. Um, and so, you know, part of access to care is, you know, having insurance benefit. And the other part of that is having access to an actual surgeon mm-hmm. who is, you know, able to take care of patients in a timely way and get them on the schedule and also um, capable and knows how to do the surgery and manage complications and things like that. So let's go back. I kind of got, got you off track, but you finished general surgery or plastic surgery plastic residency surgery. Mm-hmm. here in Michigan, and then traveled to, to Belgium, Belgium for two years. Uh, no. Or a year. Uh, six months. Six months? Yeah. Wow, okay. hands-on training time. Wow. Um, so six months, because my fellowship started in October. Okay. Uh, it was great. So it was, you know, the full spectrum of gender surgery, so facial feminization and trach shaves and gender mastectomies and breast augmentations and orchiectomies and wow. all those. Um, vaginoplasties and phalloplasties. And you trained in another language. Kind of. So yeah. it was in Flanders, and um, Ghent is the city. Yeah. Um, and it's this kind of adorable university town. Uh, they just have a really long established, reputable gender program. And so yeah. patients come from all over the world to have surgery there. Um, and trainees too? And a lot of trainees, a lot of fellows, and international yeah. fellows go there um, for really the only hands on um, gender training experience um, at that point. Wow. Yeah. What was it like working in a in another country, in another language, doing these super complicated operations? Like, how do you even, like, know what instruments to ask for and how to, like, work around in the OR? Right. So the first week you really learn, it's a different culture, both generally. And everyone speaks Flemish, which is kind of Dutch and German combined. But everyone speaks perfect English as well. Oh, wow. So so in the operating room, I knew when they were talking to me, anybody, like a nurse or a tech or one of the other residents, because everything would be in Flemish, and then they would say something in English. (laughs) I knew that was directed towards me. Okay. But you know, you very quickly learn the instrument names in Flemish. You know, hmm. the ads and forceps is a pincet, and the scissor is a scar, like stuff like that. It sounds um, much cooler. It sounds yeah. cool. Right. Yeah, yeah, it sounds super cool. 
Um, not super useful now. But, yeah. um, and then it's just a totally different culture in medicine. So it's universal health care. Everyone gets the care they need, but it's super efficient, high quality, low cost. Yeah. So coming from the United States, where we have no hesitation to open disposable stuff and products off the shelf without really thinking about the cost and mm-hmm. even quality and who's going to pay for this. You know, the first free tissue transfer I did there as a fellow um, with one of the main attendings, you know, we in the U.S. we use a vein coupler. So it's this tiny little device that kind of takes two ends of the vein and you just kind of link it up and then you hook it together. Oh, wow. And it saves time and so we always use it. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, the first flap there, I said, oh, are we going to couple the vein? And the attending leans around the microscope and said, who is going to pay for that? Oh, wow. Yeah, so if you are perfectly capable of hand-sewing a vein and paying for just one suture, right. then there is absolutely zero indication to use that. Hmm. Um, so that would be a you know 100 euros out of the patient's pocket because insurance will not pay for that. Wow. Said, so unless you want to pay for that today, we're going to hand-sew the vein. Wow. And I said, yeah. okay. Different so way of doing things, yeah. Is, yeah, so in, beyond kind of gender surgery and you know the technical aspects of my training, it was just a whole different perspective on cost and and quality and, and surgical care. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool the way that gender surgery is not just surgery, like it's not just doing operations, right? The practice of right. operative surgery. It's like, it is this sort of comprehensive, like how do we think about the patient as a whole? How do we deliver sort of a universal package for patients who are born in the wrong body? Right. So, I mean, it's it's very similar to bariatric surgery or transplant surgery, and yeah. you really need a team. Mm-hmm. So to have good patient outcomes, you need mental health, you need hormonal therapy, you need trans-competent primary care providers, you need gynecology, urology, you know, speech therapy, ENT. I mean, these patients have not only transition-related um, service needs, but they also just need kind of gender competent care providers to help them you know be healthy and you know healthy people and do well and you know i really like in gender surgery to you know a teeny tiny nugget of what makes a like a healthy good outcome for one of the gender patients Mm -hmm. um and so you know we coming here to university of wisconsin it you know immediately when i was interviewing i'm like this is not about me as a gender surgeon and it's like I need a team, yeah. um, and you know the other aspects were already in place here. We just needed to do things in a more coordinated way. And that is what's led to the UW Comprehensive Gender Services Program. Exactly, right? exactly. So we were already taking care of these patients here. There's a pediatric and adolescent um, uh, clinic that sees um, kids and adolescents, um, and they do puberty blockers um, and hormonal treatment for, for teenagers. Um, there's already primary care docs with a you know huge practice of gender patients, gynecologists doing hysterectomies, urologists doing orchiectomies, um, speech therapists doing voice therapy, but no one was really talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't this kind of central person to help patients get the referrals they need and access the care that they really they really needed within the system. So that's what we're working on. We're working on care coordination and you know patient navigation through a large academic health system. Because it's not straightforward, right? Like if you have a gender concern mm-hmm. as a patient right. um, and you you call a U, the UW, right? right? It's not like you say, oh, I was, you know, born with male genitalia. 
I actually identify as a woman. Like, can you book me for surgery on Tuesday? Right. I've got some time. Like, right. it's nothing no, no, no. like that, right? The process right. is is incredibly involved. It is, and you know, a lot of patients, you know, first it's kind of the social transition time point where they will often change their name and their pronouns and come out to their family and friends and people at work. Um, and then from there, a lot of patients go and um, have um, hormonal therapy, so testosterone or estrogen, either prescribed by a primary care provider or an endocrinologist. And then some patients, not all, but some patients want surgery, and not everybody wants the same surgery, um, and not and everybody a, needs the same surgery. And not a huge number of, not a huge percentage of patients do want surgery. I think you made the point that like um, it's... Some, so for some operations, so yeah. for trans feminine patients, everybody wants a vaginoplasty. Everybody, okay. like 90% plus. It's a great operation, though. It's one stage, very, like, great function, great cosmetic outcome. Hmm. But not many patients want a phalloplasty, hmm. where, you know, female to male, they want creation of a penis. But there's, you know, huge rates of complications, and there's a donor site, and there's long recovery process. So uh, it, it really varies. You know, there was this big survey study in 2015, um, the National Trans Health um, Survey, and it was really eye-opening, actually. Like, I had no idea that, you know, 95% of trans feminine patients really wanted and needed speech therapy hmm. um, to help feminize their voice. And that was completely not on my radar, but after seeing that survey, I said, we didn't have to contact the speech therapist and get them involved and, you know, try to get patients in. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's, it's very individualized, too. That's why we need someone to help navigate through the system to get patients the care they need and the appointments that they need with the, the select providers. Obviously, these are not surgeries that are easy to change your mind about after the fact, right? So right, there's a right, big right. screening process. Right. So it's the WPATH criteria. So the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, is this kind of international society of providers, so psychologists and endocrinologists and surgeons, patients are part of the society, which is interesting. Very and, cool. And yeah. Advocates. Yeah. And so they actually issued a, issue a standards of care document that's free to download on their website that every reputable gender program and gender surgeon follows. Hmm. And so for, for instance, uh, top surgery or chest surgery, um, everyone has to have a letter of readiness from their mental health provider. Um, confirming and they the need a mental health provider. Exactly. Yeah. And so it gets people plugged in, yeah. um, control their depression, anxiety if present, um, kind of optimize social support, um, and then really talk about kind of potential for regret and whether this is the right time um, for them to have a major operation. Um, and I, I think it's really necessary. And then for insurance coverage, so, you know, more and more insurance um, uh, insurances are covering gender surgery. You know, it's not like anything else in surgery where we can make a diagnosis of pathology by looking at it, right? So mm -hmm. for like a mastectomy, it's not like breast cancer, right? There's cancer in the breast, so therefore you need a mastectomy. Right. Breast tissue is normal. Yeah. So the functional aspect of it is the gender dysphoria. It's the, the like functional impairment on their like emotional and mental health functioning. Yeah. And so me as a surgeon, meeting them for 30 minutes, I can't really attest to the functional limitation they have by having breasts. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where the mental health letter comes in. And that, that documents you know, medical necessity for the insurance company. So that's one letter for the chest surgery, and then it's two letters for bottom surgery or genital surgery from two different mental health providers. A year of living in their congruent gender, full-time in every aspect of their life, mm. and a year of hormones. Wow. Um, and, you know, those are the minimums, and, I mean, a lot of my patients transitioned, like, 20 years ago. Um, and either they didn't have an access to a surgeon, because I'm the only person in the state, pretty much, or they didn't have an insurance benefit or something, and now they're just 
it's time for them that they want to have surgery. Wow. But, you know, it's no one calls and says, you know, I'm thinking of trying this out. I want to have a vaginoplasty next week. Like, that is never, never the story. I guess there are sort of two issues around that that I'm interested in. Like, one is most people, as I understand it, who have a, a gender identity issue, this is something that they're born with, right. right? So a lot of these patients, when they when they first realize that they're in the wrong body, like, they're, they're children. They're yeah. three years old. Yeah. yeah. Even, uh, you know, Medicare covers gender surgery since 2014. So a lot of my patients are 65 years old on the dot. Yeah. Like, they just get Medicare. They transitioned years and years and years ago. And I ask everybody, I said, when did you know? And they said, from my earliest childhood memory, yeah. I remember just being, hating my body and not being comfortable with the kind of social role that my parents tried to push on me. Mm-hmm. I refused to wear a dress or I didn't want to play with dolls or I always had boys as friends. And I, I, I like th- age three or four. And, wow. you know, if the adolescents, you know, 17, 18-year-olds or early 20-year-olds kids that come in for, you know, surgical consult, a lot of them bring their parents, and their parents are like, this kid is a boy. You know, mm-hmm. this kid was always a boy. There was never any question. And, yeah. you know, when when they finally came out, it was like, oh, yeah, oh, this, this makes total sense now. Um, and they've, you know, always struggled, and now, finally, this kid is, is really doing well. But you don't operate on them at three and four. No, 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 right? no, no, no. You... no, no. Childhood gender dysphoria is actually completely different Hmm. Than gender dysphoria or being transgender in adolescence and adulthood. Yeah. So in childhood, you support the kid and, you know, call them whatever name they want and, you know, help them kind of be comfortable. Um, But you don't do anything medically. Hmm. Um, But now the standard of care is when kids get into puberty and they start getting secondary sex characteristics that they really don't like and give them more depression, anxiety, more dysphoria, um, that confirms the diagnosis. And if mm. gender dysphoria is present in puberty and adolescence, it is like 99% pervasive into adulthood. So now the standard of care is doing puberty blockers, which are completely safe, completely reversible, just turns the kid into a, a basically a late bloomer. And you give the kid more time and the parents more time to figure things out. And then age, you know, 15, 16-ish, then you can start set like cross-hormone treatment if the kid wants. And, you know, if for whatever reason the, the kid changes their mind or things change, you could just stop taking the puberty blockers and the kid goes through puberty normally and grows normally and no harm done. Yeah. So, you know, at the big academic centers, UCLA, Toronto, CHOP, um, they've been doing blockers for a long time. And, you know, one of the first places that did them was in Amsterdam and they have some pretty good studies actually 10 years out and these kids do great. They actually have less depression, less anxiety. They don't commit suicide at the rate that they do if they if they don't have access to, to treatment. Wow, so, yeah. So, and there's a clinic here. Um, Jen Ream and Britt Allen. Um, Jen is a um, pediatric endocrinologist and Britt is a pediatrician. And they've been doing, you know, like helping these kids, these adolescents, for a, a couple of years in Madison. And they were the only people in the state and they have patients coming from Iowa and you know, they're really families in crisis, and they've really been able to have, like, huge impacts on these, on the, on these poor kids. And then that gets them to 18, 19, and then they can yes. start talking about Certainly surgical if implementations they if they want. Right. And their insurance covers it. Right. 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 And otherwise, it's like, 
wait another 40 years until Medicare kicks in. It's right. just so crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the blockers, too, they prevent unwanted second, secondary like sex characteristics. So mm-hmm. for, for instance, in trans feminine patients, so born in a male body, a man's body, and identify as a woman, you know, getting a strong brow and a like wide lower jaw, mandible, and broad shoulders from testosterone exposure, they never get that. And so the surgical aspect is much easier um, after right. the blockers and they, for lack of a better word, pass better yeah. as their congruent gender. And so that is just immeasurable. I mean, that's a lot of times the difference of being able to get a job or not and being able to be treated nicely in a restaurant or not mm. um, is kind of how well you pass is you know, who you are on the inside. And so blockers are, are like a total game changer for patients. So long as yeah. you sort of, you just have to catch it early, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. The, the kid has to be comfortable telling their parents, and their parents have to be accepting and supportive and getting them into an endocrinologist. And they have to, I mean, the puberty blockers are like thousands of dollars. Mm. So wow. you know, having insurance that would pay for them, it's just multiple, multiple steps. Things are getting better. It's slow. You know, policy does change um, with advocacy. And, um, you know, hopefully kids are doing better now than they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. It certainly feels as though we're starting to recognize how to manage these issues. Although, you know, we still face basic roadblocks like gender identity in the electronic health record, oh, right? Like yeah. sex versus gender there. And yeah. how do you change that? And, yeah. and how do you address patients? And, right. And, I and mean, be legally compliant, right? right? Your name and your medical record has to match the name on your insurance. And the name on your insurance is often has to match your employment record, which matches your legal documents. Mm-hmm. And your birth certificate in the state of Wisconsin, you cannot change the gender on it until you've had a, quote, irreversible sex change operation. Hmm. So, I mean, a lot of patients that haven't had surgery yet make an appointment in clinic with this name on the chart and gender on the chart that doesn't match. And then in the future when they need, you know, cervical cancer screening versus prostate cancer screening versus a mammogram versus, you know, a lot of that will not match the gender on the chart and then insurance won't pay for it. It's just constant, constant battles. And no one's figured it out. No one's figured out how to do it it well. It's really cool that we're at least trying. Because I know I, for my part, A, had no idea about that. The scope of the issue, and B, as I mean, I think as you can tell, like I, I'm still not even sure, kind of like how you talk about it, like right. what what the the language, the vocabulary, like the vocabulary, yeah, exactly, totally right? Changing, right? And so yeah. a lot of my 65 year old patients will say, "I'm a trans woman," and then I have never heard a 20 something say that. Hmm. <laughs> you know, the younger patients say, "I'm a demi girl," or "I'm gender queer," or "I'm trans feminine non binary," or yeah. "I'm agender," and I, that's why I ask an open question. You know, how would you describe your gender? Yeah. Because I never assume. And I, you, so you ask their preferred name, their gender, and you ask preferred pronouns. And I had a patient this morning whose preferred pronouns were Z, their, theirs. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Right. Yeah. But it's it, it's constantly changing, and I'm trying to update myself. Right. But as a surgeon, I'm kind of slow compared to you know <laughs> the pediatricians and the mental health people I try right. to keep myself up to date but it's it's hard and no one I don't think any provider or student or trainee walks into a patient room either in the hospital or in the clinic seeking to offend anybody right. I really don't think that's ever anyone's right. intent but it's hard to as a patient realize that and it's hard I think there's a lot of fear on the you know part of the providers that you know a, a lot of 
a lot of them say, you know, I this isn't a part of my practice because they're fearful of offending people. Um, so, you know, education is a huge, huge part of this. Yeah. Just the, the pronoun issue. Right. Is like, you know, it's hard because right. it's... And I mess up all the time. Right. Right. I try to be super careful yeah. and I forget. So I yeah. just... You know, I try to abuse the patient's name over and over again. Yeah. I will make a mistake <laughs> and I'll catch myself and I say, I'm so sorry, I messed up right. your pronouns. I, that was not intentional. And right. patients are generally, okay, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. It's just, a, it's a whole new world, but it's it's so great that we're finally being able to, to talk about it and recognize what's important to these patients who make up a a huge percentage of, yeah, the, of, of the, the people out there, right? Yeah, like you think of the other conditions you that sort of we treat. One percent of the population—that's kind of high. Yeah. Yeah. One out of a hundred people. You know, right. Think of how many people were in your high school graduating class, and then you know I had three hundred. I was like, three people in my high school class were transgender, probably. Yeah. Whoa. Well, thank you so much for coming by to talk to us about this. I, I just think it is so amazing, like the scope of the the issue, the stuff that we're only just now starting to realize we can do to help these patients and and really amazing work that you're doing with the comprehensive gender services program here to start creating a comprehensive way to to manage this whole issue from you know advocacy down to microvascular anastomosis like the whole <laughs> gamut very very cool that's right well thanks very much yeah. for having me i appreciate it next time on the surgery set i speak with dr deborah Hori. She's the director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We talk about the CDC's efforts to decrease and prevent opioid overdoses. Don't miss it. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app. And don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin